Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of umami. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today we're talking about soy sauce. Very important liquid condiment in Japan and in the rest of East and Southeast Asia. Traditionally, it's made by mixing soybeans, roasted grain, and certain types of mold and letting that mixture ferment. Fermented mold. Yep. Delicious. Mm-mm. The product is used to add a salty, savory, umami flavor to all sorts of dishes. Do you want to describe umami for us, Paul? Mm, it's hard to describe. Yeah. It's tastiness, but it's also like a certain flavor profile, kind of. I've heard it described as like savoriness. Yeah, it's on the salt. It's not exactly the same as salt, but it's definitely a savory flavor. Yeah. It's almost like the part of a flavor that gives it body. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. I mean, I've heard soy sauce described as like, first the saltiness hits you, then you get like that umami flavor, mm-hmm. and then you get like a little sweet and bitter finish. Sure. Soy sauce is the third most popular condiment in the U.S., I was surprised to learn. Wow. Did you happen to see the full list? Just the first three. Do you, do you want to guess what's ahead of soy sauce? Ketchup? Yep. Mayo? Correct. Ah, well done. We're fat. I knew it. Yeah, everybody loves fat. <laughs> I was just imagining people just dumping mayo and ketchup all over their french fries. Yeah. Ketchup and mayo is basically sugar and fat. The things that make everything more delicious, right? Mm, Yeah, we know what we're doing. Yep. Uh, Soy sauce is also super, super old. This is another one of my favorite facts is it's even older than the word soy. (laughs) That's awesome. I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. The word soy came from the Japanese word for soy sauce, shoyu. So soy sauce itself isn't even named after soybeans. Soybeans are named after soy sauce. That's crazy. Isn't it? It's so tempting to think that like all these words have just always existed, mm-hmm. but they didn't. They probably just called it a bean or whatever. And they were all the different types of beans were just called beans. They didn't have a word for each one. And now we do. Pretty cool. That's so cool. I love that fact. Yeah. I got a fact. What do you got? The global soy sauce market is $40 billion annually. $40 billion. That's a lot of bottles at three, four bucks a bottle. Yeah. And the soy sauce market is projected to get up to $56 billion by 2027. It is a fast growing market. I wonder why it would be growing so fast. It's becoming more and more popular in the U.S. Like you said, we're up, it's up to number three condiment. 20 years ago, I bet it wasn't the number three condiment in America. Yeah. But like what would drive a further acceleration? I was just thinking like... Maybe Chinese food is proliferating around the world right now with all their investment they're sending out. I don't know. Interesting. Invest in soy sauce, but don't blame me if you lose all your money. Uh, Maybe one of the biggest things to know about soy sauce, I think, is that there are many different kinds, and they are not interchangeable. Different countries have their own special varieties of soy sauce that have different flavors, different texture. They're very different. And if you use the wrong kind for cooking a certain dish, your food could end up a completely different color than what you expected. I know from personal experience. 
Yeah, it's like if a recipe says white wine vinegar, don't put red wine vinegar in. Mm-hmm. Or if you do, expect it to not turn out how it otherwise would have. Yeah, gets confusing. But we're hopefully we're going to clear that up for you in this episode. We should be able to help a little bit. Yeah. Let's dive into history. Okay. I want to go way, way, way back, if, right. if you don't mind. Let's go all the way back. Okay. I want to go back like 9,000 years or so. Okay. Because first, I feel like we need to talk about China and fermentation. So fermentation, if you're not familiar, the dictionary definition is the chemical breakdown of a substance by bacteria, yeasts, or other microorganisms. And I mean, this, this was super important throughout human history because of its ability to preserve almost anything. Historians believe that fermentation was first discovered probably in China around 7000 BCE. They found evidence of a fermented alcoholic beverage made from fruit, honey, and rice around that time. There's a strong theory right now that the reason humans became farmers in the first place was to grow wheat and things like it to make alcohol. I think I've heard that. Yeah, they figured out how to make alcohol and they're like, I'm a farmer now. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I'm going to devote my life to. (laughs) Yeah. It's believable. Yeah. Isn't it kind of funny to think, I don't know, alcohol is just like one of the oldest human traditions, you know? Yeah. It goes goes way back. Yeah. (laughs) So they figured out alcohol and then they figured out, hey, we could preserve other good foods with this too. And that was so important back then without refrigeration. Mm -hmm. So around 2200 years ago in China, around 200 BCE or so, they were making a thick fermented sauce or paste called jian, jiang, something like that. I don't know what Chinese is supposed to sound like, but something like that, right? And they could use all sorts of things to make this stuff. Like Paul said, you can ferment pretty much anything. They would use fruit, veggies, seaweed, meat, fish, grains. And interestingly, the fishy types of sauce that they used would have been the precursors to modern fish sauce, which is used all over Asia. Mm-hmm. And the ones based on grains are considered to be the archetype of soy sauce. So over time, China was experimenting with these different fermented pastes. And by the 3rd to 5th century CE, they were making a paste with solely fermented soy. You know, leaving out all the other ingredients, you just got fermented soy. So this would have been something like miso, I imagine. Just mash up some soybeans and let it ferment. So we're, we're starting to get sort of close to modern soy sauce. So you mentioned the fish-based sauces. Originally in Japan, they had a common condiment that was known as uo shoyu, and it was a fish-based sauce. Like so many other things, when Buddhism came to Japan from China in the 7th century, the Buddhist monks were vegetarian, and they brought soy-based products with them, including soy sauce, which eventually took over as the more common sauce than the fish-based one. Mm -hmm. So the first soy sauce-like stuff to come to Japan was basically the soy-based version of the John stuff I mentioned from China, and they called that hishio in Japan. And it sounds like it was uh, 
a bit thicker and darker than modern Japanese soy sauce. So maybe somewhere in between miso and soy sauce. Thick, dark soy sauce sounds good to me. It kind of does. <laughs> in 1254, a Zen monk named Kakushin brought back a method from China for making miso paste. And just to put this into context, if you listen to our last episode, this was right during the Kamakura period that this was happening. And uh, so Kakushin, he brought this method to a little town called Yuasa, which was in uh, modern Wakayama Prefecture, just kind of a little bit south of Osaka. And legend has it that while he was teaching these villagers how to make miso, he noticed that the liquid that was seeping out of the miso tasted really good. And that became what is now known as tamari soy sauce, a specific type of soy sauce. And we'll talk about the different types later, but for now, just know that this tamari soy sauce is made just from soybeans. So it makes sense that that was the kind of stuff that was squeezed out of the miso. Mm -hmm. So after that, soy sauce manufacturing methods advanced over time in Japan, and soy sauce started becoming more popular. There's actually a record from 1588 of around 18,000 liters of tamari soy sauce being sent to Osaka, suggesting that by that time, soy sauce was already a daily necessity to people there. And in Kanto, around the Tokyo area, soy sauce was being used at the time, but they still weren't making it there. All of it was made in Kansai, so the Kanto area had to import all of their soy sauce from Kansai. And then when the Edo period began in the early 1600s, you know, the population of Edo was growing rapidly and the people there had a slightly different preference for their soy sauce compared to the Kansai area. They wanted a more strongly flavored soy sauce, so they decided to start making their own soy sauce that was darker and stronger than what they had been importing from Kansai. Sounds like human nature. I like this. Let's make it stronger. Yeah. I want it, more of this. I thought it was kind of funny to see, like, I mean, even back then, it seems like throughout Japanese history, the Kanto and Kansai areas have always had this little rivalry, you know? It's yeah, like, yeah. we can't do things quite like Kansai. Yeah. We're going to do our own thing. We got to put our own twist on it and call it our own. Yeah. And as we'll see, those preferences have lasted until today, even. Yep. They still use slightly different types of soy sauce. That rivalry will never go away. <laughs> Probably. But it's a fun-natured rivalry. Yeah. So Japan's been exporting soy sauce since 1647 when they started trading it with the Dutch East India Company. Mm -hmm. Kind of surprising that that was happening during the Edo period because you know that period was known for extreme isolationism. Well, it had to have come through the Dutch at that point. They were the only ones that were doing any trading. Right. There was only one port that was allowed to trade with outsiders, and that was in Nagasaki. And what they chose to trade was soy sauce. That's how good it is. Mm -hmm. The Dutch were like, I need to get this home. Yeah. There were also Chinese ships. There was some trade with China as well. So soy sauce made its way to mainland China and from there to other parts of Southeast Asia. And then through the Dutch, it got into Europe, started spreading all over the place. And of course, these days, Asian cuisine is all over the place. Soy sauce can be found all over the world. And in Japan, there are now more than 1,500 producers of soy sauce. It's like the craft brewery type thing. Yeah. But get this, only 10% of those soy sauce producers are making their soy sauce from scratch because it's a really time-consuming process, which we'll get into next. But Interesting. Yeah. 
So shall we learn how soy sauce is made, Paul? Yeah. Should we start with the traditional method? Yeah, let's do that. So traditionally, soy sauces are made by mixing soybeans and grain and mold cultures. That That's it. Done, yeah. right? No, <laughs> nothing else to it. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, well, first, you got you to gotta cook your soybeans and or wheat. Wheat's usually the grain that goes in there with the soybeans. So you soak the soybeans in water, you boil them. The wheat is roasted and crushed. Mix those all together. And then that mold that you mentioned, there's a specific type of mold that you're supposed to use. You got to add aspergillus mold spores. That type of mold is also known as koji. And then when you add the koji and you mix it all together with the soybeans and the wheat, you can also call that whole mixture koji. The term can apply to the mold or the mixture. I heard the reason they crush the wheat is because if there's more surface area, the koji grows quicker. Hmm, that makes sense. So this koji mixture, this stuff is so interesting. You could kind of compare it to a sourdough starter, for example, if you have any experience with that. Yeah. The idea is that you have this living fungus culture that you can use again and again to kickstart the whole process. And I read that some companies even use the same koji culture for decades or even centuries. Why not? Yeah. You know, Kikoman, the, I mean, it's like the biggest soy sauce manufacturer in the world. They claim that their koji goes back 300 years. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. There are three species of mold or koji that they use. I'm not even going to try to say all the names, but there's three of them. So there's a little different variety out there. Yeah. And the mold can really, I mean, you can let this mixture just get mold from the atmosphere or you can add the mold if you want, you know, to make sure there's a specific type in there. And I thought the most interesting part of this whole process is the chemistry. There's so much chemistry going on, you know? So at this moldy point, there's some really cool chemical reactions. The molds are proteolytic which means that they're breaking down proteins into smaller polypeptides or single amino acids. And at the same time, there's also yeast in the mixture, which converts sugars to ethanol, which can then undergo further chemical reactions to make other flavor compounds. So like basically everything in there is just slowly getting broken down by all these different microorganisms and turning them into all these delicious flavors. Bro, I feel like I'm back in high school, but in a good way. Yeah. Like, like if they would have taught chemistry to me this way, <laughs> it would have been easier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like what does this chemical reaction mean to me? You know? <laughs> so these molds are growing over the course of a few days. And then once you got this moldy mixture, you're going to add some salt water and you're going to move this whole thing into large vats where they're also going to add a bacteria called lactobacillus. And this is a bacteria that breaks down sugars into lactic acid, which apparently softens the saltiness and lightens the taste, is what I read. Okay. So this new mixture that you have with the salt water and all the, the other stuff, the mixture itself is called moromi. And at this point, you're going to let that ferment for anywhere from five months to several years. The really high-end sauces are going to age their soy sauce for a very long time. And, you know, I just, I just love fermentation. It's so fascinating how that whole thing works. 
I think one of the coolest things is how you can let it sit for so long and not get poisonous. You know, you got all this mold, you got all this bacteria, but it's good mold and good bacteria and it's not going to kill you. And I, I kind of looked into it. I wanted to figure out why that is, like how that's possible. And apparently the salt from the salt water and the lactic acid, those allow the good bacteria to grow, but they're also at the same time killing the harmful bacteria that would make us sick. Nature's great, man. Yeah, it's amazing. Chemistry is just taking care of us. Pretty magical. So over time, as the stuff is fermenting, there are all these chemical reactions still going on. Proteins and starches are broken down into amino acids and simple sugars. Sugars turn into lactic acid. The yeast makes ethanol. All these flavors are just getting created and mixing together. And two to three months after the brewing starts, another very important process starts happening. You must be referring to the Maillard reaction. Exactly. So this is going to cause the browning of the soy sauce to get that dark color. It also develops flavor and aroma as well. Yeah. I read that it's a super complex chemical reaction and we're, we're still not even sure exactly what's going on because there's so much happening all at once. But Paul, had you heard about the Maillard reaction before? Not that I recall. I remember hearing about it. I have no idea where, but it was in reference to cooking. Yeah. Like it's the reason that if you bake bread, it gets brown on the outside. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. Right. Or if you're cooking steak, the crispy bits on the outside, you know, that kind of crust that forms, that's also the Maillard reaction. It's a reaction that happens between amino acids and sugars, usually when you're cooking something with high heat. You know, the, the crispy skin on chicken is another example, or toasted marshmallows, the, the crispy brown stuff that forms on the outside. That's all the Maillard reaction. So normally it's heat that gets you those, but I, I was kind of blown away that this reaction also apparently happens really slowly during soy sauce fermentation. Yeah, that's interesting because heat causes it when you're baking or cooking, mm -hmm. but it's fermentation causing it in the case of soy sauce. Mm -hmm. But it's the same chemical reaction. Pretty cool. Yep. So once your soy sauce mix is fully brewed to exactly the point you want it, you're going to have to press it to separate all the grainy, mushy stuff from the liquid because mm -hmm. you just want that pure soy sauce liquid. So you just take a cloth-lined container and you press everything and squeeze the juices out through the cloth. And fortunately, those solids that get separated from the soy sauce aren't wasted either. I saw that those are used as fertilizer or animal feed. So now you got raw soy sauce. And you can either continue to age it even more, or if you think it's ready for consumption, you can pasteurize it. So in pasteurization, you're going to heat it up to kill any leftover active yeasts or molds. And then you might also filter it to remove any fine particulates that are still swimming around in there. And this heating is also going to trigger even more of that Maillard reaction, further developing the flavor. Mm-hmm. And then you're ready to bottle and sell it, right? And you got yourself some delicious soy sauce. Heck yeah. So that's the traditional method. But not all soy sauce is made that way, is it, Paul? No, it's not. 
There's always money to be made by cutting corners. Yeah, if you want to make some money, you make hydrolyzed soy protein. What's that? That is where you make soy sauce from acid hydrolyzing soy protein instead of actually brewing it with the traditional culture. It only takes about three days, which is the huge difference from the five plus months it takes brewing traditionally. That's a pretty big difference. And frankly, this hydrolyzed soy protein stuff sounds freaking gross. <laughs> Basically, instead of breaking down the proteins through fermentation, you know, the long way, mm -hmm. you just take some soybeans, or maybe not even whole soybeans, but like defatted soy flour. Doesn't that already sound delicious? <laughs> defatted soy flour? That sounds gross. Just wait for the next part. You take that defatted soy flour and add a bunch of hydrochloric acid. That sounds dangerous. I know. And then you heat that stuff up. So the acid breaks down the proteins real fast, like really fast, into amino acids. Kind of like in Breaking Bad when they used acid to, you know, melt a human body. And then <laughs> you got this acidic soy stuff. And you got to add some sodium carbonate in there to neutralize all the acid. And then you got this stuff that's safe to drink. Pretty much the same as soy sauce, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so if you've had like Chinese takeout and you get those little packs of like dark soy sauce, it's this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, they know when they make this stuff that it doesn't taste, smell, or look as good as real soy sauce. So what they do is add a bunch of salt corn syrup, caramel coloring, so that they can trick you into thinking that it's actually soy sauce. I just learned this, but another thing they do is this is what liquid aminos are. If you've ever had that. What, what is, is this a vegan thing? It's not a vegan <laughs> thing. It's like a health foods thing. Okay. They brand it as liquid aminos. It's, it's like a lower sodium version of soy sauce. Okay in health food stores, like we sell it at my work and I've had it before and it's like soy sauce, but not as good as yeah. like the perfect description of it. <laughs> I didn't know that this is like what it was. They put aminos in the name, like, oh, get your amino acids. This is going to be healthy for you. Yeah. But I don't think you actually get much healthy stuff out of it. I don't know. Pretty sneaky marketing. But they add no sugar to the liquid aminos. So it's like the base stuff. Okay. So it probably doesn't even taste as good as like the fake stuff that they're adding the sugar and everything to. Yeah, probably. Uh, the reassuring thing, though, is that at least in Japan, that stuff can't be legally labeled as soy sauce. Correct. However, some soy sauce brands will mix some of that stuff in with their traditionally brewed soy sauce to reduce costs, and that is legal. What are they, drug dealers? Like, let us cut this 49% uh, we'll still sell it as the good stuff. Yeah, pretty much the same thing. <sighs> Capitalism, gosh. Don't even get me started, Paul. <laughs> do we sound like total commies? It's okay if we do, Jason. Okay. Everyone's going to interpret it their own ways. Sure. We're about to get hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Would you like to talk about the types of Japanese soy sauce and their many uses? Yes, I would love to. Cool. Soy sauce in Japan 
is divided into five main categories, depending on differences in their ingredients and the methods of production used. Yep. You want to start with dark soy sauce or koikuchi shoyu? So this is the most common type sold in Japan and overseas. Over 80% of all Japanese soy sauce is this type. Yeah, I think it translates to thicker taste or something along those lines, or that's what it's referring to. Being 80% of the domestic soy sauce production in Japan, it can be considered typical or normal Japanese soy sauce. Yeah, if you go to your grocery store and they only have one type of Japanese soy sauce, it's going to be this kind. And, uh, you know, you've probably seen Kikoman's standard all-purpose naturally brewed soy sauce. That's this. And we're talking roughly equal quantities, soybeans and wheat used in this. Mm -hmm. So if you remember from the history section, this is the type that was developed in Edo, which became Tokyo. And it's uh, reddish brown. It's got a strong aroma, salty, deep umami flavor. Mm. Yum. It is the ultimate general purpose soy sauce. So they use it in all sorts of ways. You got marinades basting sauces. You can dip stuff in it, use it for stir fry as a seasoning for all sorts of other dishes. I'm so hungry right now. Sorry. (laughs) I'm going to make some stir fry tomorrow. It's happening Mm. with lots of soy sauce. Uh, What if you don't like thick taste? Well, you could go with the second most common type of soy sauce, usukuchi shoyu or light soy sauce. This makes up about 10 to 15% of all Japanese soy sauce. I have this as thin taste. So maybe coochie is taste? Coochie means mouth. Okay. Well, okay. So maybe thin taste is the best translation to English or something. Yeah. Maybe they're talking about mouth feel. Yeah. Sort of thing, like how it feels in your mouth. Yeah, like thinner feel in your mouth. Yeah, like you were just drinking earlier, koicha. Mm-hmm. Koicha oh, is yeah. like a strong tea. Yeah. And then you got usu, usucha. So koi kuchi is like the strong mouth taste or something. Okay, yeah. I had to double check. But yeah, if you're making matcha, for example, there's koi cha, the thick stuff that they use in the tea ceremony. And then there's usu cha, the thinner stuff that you might drink on a daily basis or whatever. I'm just over here learning Japanese today. Yeah, it's cool to see how it all fits together like that. Did you mention this is popular in the Kansai region? I didn't, but yeah. In the history section, again, we talked about how this was... The first super popular type made around Osaka, right? Yep. That's so funny how like 80% of the country now is on the Koikuchi, but Kansai is like, no, 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 ours was better all along. They like refused to switch over Yeah, because they got their pride. Yeah, Kanto won that battle. They did. So th- this one, did we say what, or did you say how, it, how it's made, how that's different? No. Okay, so they're, they're going to use more soybeans for this one less wheat, more salt, but it's also less strongly fermented. So that's what gives it a a lighter appearance. Takes less time to brew. Mm -hmm. Milder aroma, but that salt really comes through. And there's also a slight sweetness because they add a sweet rice wine to it. Oh. I heard it's commonly used in cooking because it doesn't alter the color or taste as much of everything else. It doesn't overpower the dish. Right. My first experience with light soy sauce is with soups. You can oh, use it to make okay. a broth without making it a really dark. Is that soup. how they make those soy broths? 
Yeah, like the you know udon soup with a light broth, and it would use this kind of soy sauce. Okay, nice. Um, you can also use it in other dishes that you know you you want some of that soy sauce flavor, but you don't want to change the color, or you just want slightly lighter soy sauce flavor. Next, we got tamari soy sauce, right? Yep. Made mainly in the Chubu region, tamari is darker and richer in flavor. Yeah, so remember, this is that first stuff that was squeezing out of the miso that they were making, right? So this type is made from almost all soybeans. Like some types are made with 100% soybeans. It could have up to 10% wheat. So this is what you can go for if you have a gluten intolerance. Find those ones made with no wheat, and this is the soy sauce for you. Yep, definitely. I also read, actually, that uh, the fermentation happens for so long and all the ingredients are so broken down that it's possible that even types of soy sauce that are made with wheat might not have any allergens left in there. Like, if you are gluten intolerant, you might still be okay eating other types of soy sauce. But, of course, if you want to be really safe, stick with the tamari. Yeah. Tamari makes up about 1.5% of soy sauce produced in Japan. So it's a, it's a little bit. I've seen it in recipes. I've seen recipes yeah. that specifically call for two tablespoons of tamari. Yeah, I've seen that too. Uh, this is also the type of Japanese soy sauce that is closest to Chinese soy sauce because they're made in a very similar way. Yeah, this is like the original old school stuff. Right. This would be closest to that very first soy sauce that was in Japan. And uh, Paul, did you see the origin of that name, tamari? No. It comes from the verb tamaru, which means to accumulate. Because originally, like I said, this is the stuff that accumulated as a byproduct of miso. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. It's the accumulations. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what would this type be used for mostly? Um, it's used with sashimi sometimes. Or sushi. I read that it can be used with senbei, rice crackers. Oh, okay. Teriyaki, you might also use this, or, oh. or uh, other grilled foods. What would be the opposite of tamari, if you're looking for something on the other end of the scale? That would be shido shoyu. Shido means white, so this is like white soy sauce, and it's made with very little soybean and almost all wheat. So that's what's going to give it a super light color. It's going to have a lighter, milder, sweeter flavor. Again, this one's more common in the Kansai region. Makes sense. Used sometimes with sashimi, I saw. I don't know if there's certain fish that uh, go better with a sweeter one. I'm speculating again. I read that you might use this for white-fleshed fish with a mild flavor. Because it's milder flavor soy sauce, it's not going to overpower the milder fish. I was imagining white fish in my head. I have no idea why. Hmm. But all right. Maybe just the white, white thing. I saw that it can also be used for soups and egg custard. You can add some of that soy sauce flavor and sweetness without the dark color. I feel like, it, I mean, it's made very differently from the light soy sauce, but I feel like it could be used in similar ways. Yeah, probably. I saw that it's also used in high-class cooking. Okay. Like when they're getting really fancy, they'll sometimes use this. Huh. I wonder if like rarity comes into play at all. Cause I mean, very little of the soy sauce that's made in Japan is this type. It always does for fine dining. I feel like, Yeah. you know, you got that, that extra factor of like, you can't get this anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. 
I also saw that this is used to make super delicious pickles. Ah, I really want to try a soy these. sauce pickle. Yeah, I mean it's basically pickling it with salt, you know. Yeah, okay. But you get some of that sweetness from the soy sauce too. Well, you should try putting some soy sauce in your pickle press. Yeah, and I wonder see what happens. I'm not sure like how hard it is to find this stuff. I wonder if the local Asian market would have some. Maybe. Have to look. So that's four. Yeah. I said there were five varieties. You did say that. So what's number five? Number five is Saishikomi, which is made in a cool way. It's like in the traditional process, you're adding salt water to the moldy grains and beans. But for this type, instead of adding salt water, you add soy sauce. So you're basically double fermenting your soy sauce. Twice brewed soy sauce. Yeah. So you're going to get a heavier taste with this one. Like it's basically twice as strong, right? And it's commonly used as a dipping sauce. Yummy, yummy. It's also more expensive because it takes pretty much twice as long to make. You got to make the soy sauce twice. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's all the main types of soy sauce in Japan. But before we move on, I want to reiterate real quick. Different countries have their own types of soy sauce and they're not the same, even if they're called the same thing. Japanese light soy sauce is not the same as Chinese light soy sauce. Same with dark. They both have things they call dark soy sauce. So be sure you know what country a soy sauce is from before you buy it, if you're getting it for like a specific recipe or something. Sometimes you can see it'll say Japanese soy sauce on the label, but sometimes you might need to look a little closer. It might have little small print on the back that says product of Japan or... I feel like sometimes you just need to be able to recognize what language it is on the label, you know, if it's imported and it's not labeled for, for sale in the U.S. Yeah. So just look closely, be careful. You can usually find some indication of where it's from. There are some newer varieties. I saw there was a Genen, which is a 50% less salt than regular soy sauce. Boo. And there was an Usu Geo which was 20% less salt. So I, I've seen like lower sodium versions of soy sauce all over the place. Yeah. But I was surprised to read that they actually make that by making normal soy sauce and then they take some of the salt out of it. Okay. They don't just add water? No. Okay. So maybe, I was thinking if it was kind of stupid, like, you know, you're adding like salt to your dish, you're just adding less salt. Yeah. So you'd have to use more of it. But maybe you get some of that other flavor. You still get some of that flavor without quite as much salt. Right. People that have high blood pressure or heart problems or something are sometimes, I think, advised to have less salt. That's probably why they exist, Yeah, would be my guess. Yep. There are also grades of soy sauce based on how they were made. There's Hon Jozo, which is genuine fermented soy sauce containing 100% genuine fermented product. So you were, we were talking before about how they cut some. This is how you tell the difference. Mm -hmm. And then there's Congo Jozo, which is mixed fermented. That means it's going to have 30 to 50% of the hydrolyzed soy protein. And the rest will be the traditional fermented. So it's up to half and half. And I saw that for the Congo Jozo, they add the hydrolyzed soy protein before fermentation but if they add it after fermentation to the raw soy sauce, they call that Congo. Oh, okay. 
there's some really cool places to learn about soy sauce and buy soy sauce products in Japan. Hmm. I found a bunch, but just to name a few quick ones for you that seemed really cool. There's an island between Honshu and Shikoku called uh, Shodoshima. That's got a 400-year-old history of producing soy sauce. There's about a dozen soy sauce factories on the island, in the town center even. And one of the companies has a museum that you can tour on its factory grounds that just shows you everything about their traditional style of brewing. And then they've got a gift shop and signs in English, so you can really go there and experience what it's like. The whole process of brewing. That sounds and you can awesome. smell it too, is what I hear. Everyone's like, you can smell it, was nice. the number one comment. I would love to spend some time in that gift shop. I bet they got some cool stuff. And then there's another place called Noda City that during the Edo period, a bunch of families that made soy sauce came together to create the Kikoman brand. So they all like got together, apparently. And there's a factory tour you can take there. You could reserve a guided tour, or you can just go there and walk around on your own. Sounds fun. Yeah, when you finish the tour, you could taste a wide variety of soy sauces. It's like going to a winery. Awesome. You can taste all the different ones they produce. You can try roasting the sembe crackers with soy sauce, of course. Mm. Obviously. They have soy sauce ice cream at the cafe. Wow. Right? I need to know how that tastes. I got to check these places out. Dude, I know. That sounds so good. Yeah. I heard it tastes like a little bit caramely. I can imagine Because you got that salt, but then like the sweetness of it together makes yeah. that caramel taste. Totally. And then the last one I'll say, there's a place called Soy Sauce Kingdom <laughs> in Saitama, which is just north of Tokyo. It was set up in 2006 to educate the public about the making of soy sauce. You can have a hands-on experience making your own unrefined soy sauce. But you have to book that in advance if you want to do that. Huh. But you can also just show up and walk around and see how they make everything. And they sell everything soy sauce related. The one that really jumped out on me is soy sauce bread. I want to try soy sauce bread so bad. I mean, don't you make bread sometimes? Couldn't you just dump some soy sauce in there? I don't know if it's that simple. There's I'm going to try. There's got to be a try. recipe. You normally put a little bit of salt in bread, yeah, but not a ton. I'm sure if you Google soy sauce bread recipe, you're going to find something. They also have soy sauce ice cream, of course. Nice. <laughs> but they have like so much soy sauce stuff. All these people were writing articles like 10 best soy sauce things to buy at this place. Okay, give me one second. I need to type this into my phone because I've been putting together ideas of things to do right around Tokyo. Yeah. Soy Sauce Kingdom, you said, right? Yep, yep. They also have a corner in the facility where you can taste various soy sauces, and they teach you what it's supposed to pair best with. <laughs> soy sauce pairings, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so what if you're not in Japan, Jason? Where are you going to get that awesome soy sauce? Well, uh, best place to go is probably your local Asian market. I mean, normal grocery stores will usually have some sort of soy sauce, but if you want a wide selection, you're going to have to go to a specialty shop, probably. Now that you know there's all these different kinds you need for different situations. Yeah. You know, usually an Asian market will have a whole aisle of soy sauces. So if you've never had a look at that, it'll blow your mind. 
And you know, I want to talk a little bit more about Kikoman because, I mean, that's the brand I always buy. It's everywhere. I mean, it's super, super popular in Japan and around the rest of the world. The best selling shoyu in the world. It's quite good. And yeah. you know what you're getting, that consistent quality stuff. Right. If you look at the label, it even says on there, traditionally brewed, which means that uh, they're using that traditional process and they're not mixing in any of that hydrolyzed stuff. So that Honjozo process, Paul, that you mentioned when you're talking about the grades of soy sauce, this is quality stuff. Bro, are we soy sauce elitists? I guess so. Rightfully so. We're already like whiskey elitists and stuff. Why not add one more thing <laughs> to the list, right? We just like high quality stuff. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get real fancy, there are some premium brands of soy sauce you can look for if you're willing to spend a little bit more. Ooh. Some of the top ones are Yamasa, Kamebishi, and Kishibori. And Paul, I was surprised to find that if you're, if you're one of those people that really likes made in USA kind of stuff, there is a handcrafted soy sauce from Louisville, Kentucky. Wow. They call it bluegrass soy sauce. And it's actually supposed to be really good. It's aged in bourbon barrels. I was going to say Kentucky. Like they know how to ferment stuff in Kentucky. Yeah. And it's like 10 bucks a bottle. So, I mean, it better be good, right? Yeah. <laughs> I got one more place you can get soy sauce. Oh, yeah? You could try making it yourself if you were so inclined. There are a bunch of recipes you can find online, and it's apparently not that difficult, but it just takes a while. You know, we talked about how long that traditional method takes. You got to ferment it for a long time. So if you do mess up at some point, you just wasted a lot of time and you got to start all over. That's kind of the one drawback to it, but it'd be a fun project. We got to do it. I feel like that's how this year's going. Like we already made our own mochi. Yeah. Like we're working on some sake. Soy sauce next. Let's do Let's it. Let's do it. Let's Definitely. just keep making stuff for ourselves. Yeah. And fresh fun. homemade. What else are you going to do in, uh, in quarantine life? I don't know, man. Play a lot of video games. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do it tomorrow night. Hop on Steam. We'll, we'll play. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, sounds like that's the end of the episode, right? You got any last uh, words of wisdom, Paul? Number one condiment in the world, soy sauce. Maybe in a few years. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to see some cool pictures, you can find us on Instagram, SJP Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook.com slash Sightseeing Japan podcast. If you don't have Instagram and you want to send us a comment, we've got email too. Yeah. Feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. What are we talking about next time, Paul? We're going to talk about game centers. All right. Arcades, basically. Yeah. But uh, like 10 stories. <laughs> Maybe not quite, but they are big. Some of them are huge. How are we going to do this? Are we going to talk about like each game that you can find in there? And how to beat them. <laughs> We're going to talk about whatever we want to talk about. You know those Claw, the UFO grabber games? Yeah. I have seen some cool stuff about like techniques to win those. You enlightened me on that last year. I thought those things were totally luck. But no, apparently you become super skilled at those games. Yeah, there are tricks. So and maybe, maybe we'll, we'll uh, dish out a trick or two. Yeah. It'll be a little harder to describe them without a visual aid. You know, you got to get the claw in this little 
tiny corner over here. Well, then you swivel it around and turn to left and pull it back, and then you got it. Yeah. Easy, guys. We'll try to make it easy to understand. And, and by the time you play one of those games next time, you'll be a pro and you'll win. You'll clean the place out. Yeah. Get all those cute stuffed animals. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.